You're listening to The Driven, the podcast that gives you the news and the views and the ins and the outs on electric vehicles. The Driven is presented by Giles Parkinson, the editor of Renew Economy and The Driven websites. It is brought to you by Solaray Energy, designing and installing solar and storage solutions so you can run your electric vehicle the smart way on solar. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of The Driven Podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the founder and editor of thedriven.io, our um, EV-focused website, along with uh, Renew Economy and the related One Step Off the Grid. And as part of our exploration of all things electric vehicles, I'm delighted to welcome today the Chief Executive of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, Ian Learmonth. Um, Ian, thanks for joining the Driven Podcast. Pleasure to be here, Giles. Look, um, the CEFC has recently launched its um, latest annual investment report, and uh, the CEFC, is, of course, has been um, under the spotlight um, both for the sort of the plans of the federal governments in investment uh, technology, not taxes, um, sort of strategy of which I'm sure the CFC will play a key role. But let's just dive in first to electric vehicles because this is an electric vehicle podcast. Now, you drive an electric, um, you do have an electric vehicle. Tell us, tell us what you've got and how long you've had it. Yeah, thank you, Giles. Um, yeah, I look, I drive a, a Tesla Model 3, probably the, yes, the very popular Model 3, see it all around <laughs> my neck of the woods here in California, California cockroaches, I think we're talking, calling them up here. There's so many of them around. <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting. Um, I actually opted for the extra uh, capacity battery model. Um, so you could, you know, that was a sort of an optional extra because mm. as I've mentioned to you, Giles, I don't have a garage. Uh, I live in an, in an old part of the eastern suburbs of Sydney. So I have to park the car on the street and I am at the disposal of public uh, EV recharging or even running a, um, you know, r- running a cable out the window of my old cottage here and across the, the footpath with a, with a you know, security plate over the top. So, yeah, it's an interesting experience but, uh, and okay. loving, loving the cable. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so how's that working out with the cable across the footpath and the uh, and the cable cover? Is, do you do that often? Yeah, look, I don't. I, I, I tend I'm to. Surprised. Yeah, only because, yes, look, one, it, I'm sure the neighbours think what on earth's going on here and there's a reasonable flow of traffic uh, along along my footpath because it leads there's a little park up the end of the street. So I'm sort of conscious that I don't want to be too conspicuous out there and creating mm. a public nuisance. So I'm down at... You know, Woolies, there's a not a fast charger, but a you know, Charge Fox charger down there, or Bondi Beach, similar Charge Fox uh, recharger down there. Free parking, so hugely advantageous. So you can, you know, on in, in better weather, it's raining here today in Sydney, in better weather, you can go down there, <clears throat> plug in, you know, have you go for your swim and come back, and you probably got another 20% on the um, on the dial. So that doesn't sound like a fast charger. These are just sort of reasonably slow chargers. It means you either got to take a lot of time choosing your um, choosing your shopping shopping in the in the Isles of Woolworths, which is probably not recommended in, in a COVID lockdown, or take a have a very long slow swim. No, you're right. You're right. I'm, I think they're eleven kilowatts. I mean, the house is something woeful, like two. So yeah. I have to go for a good twelve hours. Um, I don't have three phase power. It's just you know conventional plugged into the wall 
power. Mm. Um, so I need a good 12, 15 hours to, to recharge the whole car. Yeah, but down there, yes, they're certainly not fast chargers. I think they're maybe they're 10 or 11 kilowatts. Yeah. Kind of sounds to me you're doing it because you love having an electric vehicle and you're prepared to sort of alter your, um, you know, your shopping and your swimming and your walking habits to sort of plug in where you can. Um, that's not really going to work with the mass market, is it, when everyone gets EVs? No. Look, I think that's right. I, you know, I, in some ways, given my role as the CEO of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, also wanted to given transport's a big part in what we're trying to do with EVs, really see what is it like out there with recharging. I mean, it's, I mean, look, it's a fabulous car to drive. It's an absolute pleasure to drive. But, look, for most people, that would be a, a, quite an inconvenience. So, um, you know, I think I think things have got to change before there's going to be mass take-up. Take up. And how would they change? What do you think that needs to happen? Do you need to have more sort of really, really quick-charging um, stations. I mean, really, there's actually not that many in 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 Sydney City itself, because I guess the assumption is up till now, most people either have their own homes and their garages, and they can kind of plug in overnight or during the day with their solar. Do we need that, or do we need Woolworths to have multiple, multiple, multiple charging stations that everyone can sort of plug into mm-hmm. and same down at the beach? Um, you know, should there yeah. be a row of EV charging? I mean, I guess it's going to be a mixture of everything, really. I think I think you're right. It is a mixture of everything. Um, the fast charging area in Sydney, there really only seem to be two in near proximity, you know, one on <clears throat> Broadway, which is kind of just outside the CBD and the, and the other on the other side of the bridge. So um, I think there needs to be a lot more fast chargers because, you know, then you can, I mean, you're never going to quite have the experience of filling your car up with petrol, which is, you know, a seven minute, 10 minute turnaround in some cases, very quick mm. experience. Recharging your car is always a much longer one, but you don't want it to be a two-hour experience for people. You want it to be, at best, you know, to go from, I don't know, 30% of battery to 90% in half an hour. That's all manageable, but that will require access to a fast charger and, and you know, plentiful access depending on, on where you are. So there's a lot's got to happen out there in recharging land, I think, to make a difference. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how the sort of, you know, the, the mass market adapts and whether they're sort of happy to go and do like a 15, 20-minute charge and they can go and get a cup of coffee or do a quick errand or something like that mm. and having the availability of getting in the mindset of charging things, which might take half an hour, an hour, an hour and a half, but they're doing something else. They're sitting down at a restaurant, going for a long walk, going for a swim, having a nice lunch somewhere or whatever and but at the same time, not sort of choking up the available parking spots. It's actually going to be quite a thing to manage, isn't it? I mean, we sort of see the complications of sort of dealing with the whole sort of COVID epidemic and, you know, the the various sort of um, um, rules put in place and the confusion about those rules and how they apply to different people in different situations and different locations and all those sort of things. I mean, I I just imagine we're going to have to sort of struggle with the same sort of education program, um, um, in, in the mass market, I mean, at the moment, we've probably got, you know, 10, 15,000 electric vehicle drivers in Australia, but most of them are sort of quite happy to sort of discover themselves how it works. And because they're early adopters, they're kind of naturally more patient. I th- yeah, look, I think that's absolutely right. And then, look, of course, most people who <clears throat> drive an EV today have a garage. So they, you know, you're absolutely right. They, they charge, recharge overnight or they use their, um, you know, use their solar 
power to do that. But yeah, lots and lots of people live in apartments in the bigger cities of Australia. Still a lot of older parts of you know some of the more established cities that people might live in a single dwelling without a garage like me. So there's there's a lot of there's an evolution to take place and. Uh, you know, as we say, it's a very different experience. It's not necessarily a quick one. So, look, it's interesting. I was reading, you know, you would have seen today the, um, you know, five thousand potentially up to 5,000 recharging sites to be rolled out by a company called Jolt. Yes, uh, yes. That's, back, that's back a step by, in the right direction. Yeah, backed mm. by BlackRock, who are one of the biggest um, investors in the world. Indeed. And they have an interesting model where they're using both advertising and signage to pay for part of it and then i think they give you your first seven kilowatt hours for free and after that you um you know you have to pay so there's various models around you know people like charge fox uh you know i mentioned earlier on that i use i think they're a combination of a very small amount. You know, you can use a couple of hours of charge fox and you end up paying like five dollars or something. It seems seems like almost nothing. And yet I think they get something from OEMs. So they've got a different model again. Right. OEMs being the car manufacturers, so they've got to deal with the sort of the, the makers of the electric vehicles to sort of get some sort of revenue per charge or something. They do, yes. Yeah, yeah. So how do you sort of think? I mean, what do, I mean, have you taken your? You've got a long range um, model three. I mean, have you taken it for? A, have you taken it for long trips? I, you know, I haven't. I'm I'm already feeling like I'm suffering slightly from range anxiety. I've, the furthest I've, the furthest I seem to have gone so far. And remembering, of course, we're in COVID lockdown here in Sydney over the last few months. Although I've had the car for for about ten months. Mm. Um, you know, I've gone to you know, the northern beaches um of you know a couple of hours away I yeah, haven't... that's not very far <laughs> no it is not very far <laughs> i need to bite the bullet when this you know when the lockdown's over and go right now i've got to i've got to drive to byron i've got to drive to uh to melbourne i've got a son in melbourne love to do that um yep. and yep. see just how hard or otherwise that experience is well, look, I live up and up near Byron, and I've been down to Sydney and Canberra about a half a dozen times now, and um, it's actually not very hard at all. And um, even the time I actually had to go inland because all the, the 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 coastal route was flooded, and I was a bit worried about that, but um, that wasn't a problem. And I don't actually have a long range; I've just got the normal standard range plus, which um, surprise, surprise, doesn't go anywhere near the four hundred or four hundred and sixty kilometres originally advertised. Probably more closer to two hundred and fifty, but there's enough charging stations around to. Um, to um to stop every couple of hours have a cup of coffee go to the loo come back have something to eat and come back and off you go again so yes i didn't, I didn't so i think you really should next time you go down and see the energy minister about your uh, about your investment mandate i think you should at least drive to canberra in your electric vehicle and uh, park it next to his i think he's got a he's, he's i think he's got a four-wheel drive hasn't he um not, old ford territory you could park it next to that <laughs> <laughs> yes show him up <laughs> um, but you're right. Yeah. It's look. It's range anxiety. Um, I think it's one of those things. You just got to you got to break through and and familiarise yourself with those places yeah. and get get more, you know more get, get comfortable that that, that is eminently achievable. Um, and look, sure enough, the nation will be wired for sound at some point. Yeah. So tell me, I mean, how important, I mean, Clean Energy Finance Corporation, you have actually put some money into various EV projects. Um, what have you done so far and why? 
Yeah, look, we obviously see transportation more broadly as a sector here in Australia is very is very significant. It, it's responsible for something like seventeen percent of overall emissions. So we, uh, you know, we've got a multifaceted strategy to deal with that. And of course, one of them is is uh, supporting the uptake of EVs here in Australia. So we've done a few things there. We've we've provided lots of um, auto financiers and banks with sub-market debt facilities, so very cheap wholesale loans. So they can then go and on-lend to people who are buying EVs and provide them with with a concessional interest rate. Now, you can only get yourself so far doing that because interest rates are very low. And people might also say cynically that, well, you know, Tesla is responsible for two out of three EV sales, and a lot of people who buy Teslas probably don't even need to borrow the money. So there are other strategies that we're embarking on as well. We've been investing in recharging, of course. So we've we're a shareholder in Jet Charge, probably the leading specialist in EV recharging infrastructure. They also own, have an interest in Charge Fox, and that's a, you know a charge that you see around town. So we're we're Kind of, I guess, multifaceted in that sense. We're trying to support a key player like Jet Charge, terrific company, growing rapidly. You know, they're out there providing recharging solutions to people. You know, say corporates or even governments that are looking to take up EVs in, in the fleet space. They've got, got to work out where we're going to have our recharge, uh, EV charging. So, um, the, you know, the Jet Charge team go, go in there and, and, and install it and do all the, the smarts related to that. So uh, that's been part of it. We've actually also made a reasonable investment in a uh, an e-bike startup here in Australia called Zumo, <clears throat> which is you know, provides these very high-tech kind of innovative uh, electric bikes that are used for deliveries, uh, couriers, um, you know, food deliveries, those sorts of things, which of course is a rapidly expanding market. And Zumo, interestingly enough, although Australian headquartered, is growing at a, an extraordinary rate, both in North America and Europe. So, um, but that, so that's on the, you know, the e-bike side. Um, but yes, look, it's a case of trying to do everything we can to support the uptake of EVs. So that's addressing issues like the cost of an EV through low-cost finance, range anxiety through helping the installation of further EV charging. We're trying to work also with state governments and, and big corporates who are responsible largely for fleet uh, acquisitions. And, and, you know, fleet, uh, the you know, the acquisition of cars via fleets is responsible, I think, for something like 60% of cars in Australia, like yeah. a very substantial amount. So if you can crack the fleets, you're, you're in good shape. And, and, of course, many state governments, many councils, many big big corporates here in Australia are, are, are at some point thinking about when do we start to introduce EVs into our fleets. So we're trying to work with them. Uh, on on many levels, maybe you know, in, in some cases we're also looking at supporting EVs in the secondary market. So I've got a lot of initiatives going um, because you know coming back to the start of that, really important we uh, that we we accelerate the transition to electric vehicles because we you know as we saw in the um, you know the recent uh, electric vehicle council report that came out earlier in the week, we're still. Uh, a very, very small percentage of new car sales here in this country are EVs compared to our European yep. uh, cousins.
It's, it's starting to grow though. Yeah, but um, and it that's is. interesting. Mm. Yeah, and and with the fleets, it's really important because it will, as you mentioned, you talk about the secondary market. I guess you mean the used car market. I mean, they're the ones that essentially yeah. supply that or will supply the initial. Um, you know, there's probably about 100, 140 used EVs for sale at the moment around the place, and um, I, you know, it's driven is also sort of preparing to launch its own sort of um, secondhand um, uh, site um, for um, for secondhand EVs for for the trade. So watch that space there. Um, but um, yeah, that, that's critically important because you need a secondhand market. You need a, you need a thriving secondhand market because not anyone not everyone can buy um, new petrol and diesel cars, and there's probably not going to be able to buy new um, EV EVs anytime soon. That's right. Mm, no, yeah. Absolutely. So yeah. yes. So we'll see see how that market uh, unfolds. And um, uh, but you know, there's also look. We're also looking at things probably not. Of, quite as, as much interest to your listening audience as, as the EVs, but we're also looking at um, hydrogen in the uh, in the trucking sector, in the resource sector, heavy haulage vehicles. So there's also uh, a lot of work being done in that regard. So it's it's you know it's quite multifaceted. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there's, there's still some rollouts of um, hydrogen cars, but I can't quite see sort of hydrogen working in sort of a passenger car fleets, although some people beg to differ. Um, but it does seem to be, it's a fair, it sounds like it's an each way bet for for haulage vehicles and really big vehicles um, between batteries and, um, and hydrogen um, fuel cells. I think so. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And what's your expectation then of the take up of EVs? I mean, we've seen overseas; um, it's been incredibly rapid in some countries. Norway's at that seventy or eighty percent plug-in vehicles. It's actually got a ban in place by twenty twenty-five. Um, a lot of other European countries are already in the double digit. Um, some above twenty percent, such as Sweden, um, double digit share of EVs, and many of those countries have bans on new petrol and sales cars by twenty thirty. Um, surely that's got to happen almost as quickly in Australia because we don't make our own cars, so we're not going to have much choice but to take the EVs which are on offer. No, absolutely, and <clears throat> it will it will happen. I guess it's just as you say, it's just a question of. Of time, I mean, it's incredible how yeah, the Northern European, Scandinavian countries have just been phenomenal uh, adopters of the of the electric vehicle. I mean, look, it it helps that the countries geographically are smaller; they're highly populated. So you you know some of these issues about recharging and distances travelled aren't quite as pressing as they are in the wide, you know, brown sunburnt country of Australia. Um, so, but look, eventually we'll have no choice. I mean, no one will be making, if you want a new vehicle, I mean, the secondary uh, ICE, internal combustion engine vehicle market, it certainly will continue for, of course, a very long time. But if you want a new vehicle in coming years, certainly after 2030, 2035, you, you, you may not have much of a choice. So look, we will eventually, and we have to get there, um, but it's a question of you know addressing some of those things. So uh, anything we can do to help, I think, is 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 well mm. received. Mm. Now, um, let's just sort of talk about some sort of broader things then um, beyond electric vehicles. I mean, the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, as mentioned at the start, um, you have just delivered your last year's sort of financial um, investment update. Um, gosh, I, I had the figure in my mind, and now I can't remember it. You've um, invested one point four billion dollars, I think, was it the last year or something like that? Yes, we we did indeed. Yeah, and that and, was yeah of, of new transactions, and there were a lot of other 
you know, refinancings and restructurings, and um, we made quite a number of investments in our clean energy innovation fund as well. But yes, it was a it was another big year for um, for the CFC. Yeah, I mean, you started off life um, investing. I mean, I guess your big t- big ticket items originally were sort of large scale solar and wind farms because these were relatively new technologies. The bankers couldn't quite get their minds around them, so they wanted to ha- um, act at a big risk premium. So you guys came in and said, uh, "No, look, we're sort of reasonably confident with this, and um, we'll kind of eliminate that um, risk premium and therefore make the you know the the the, the bank finance sort of reasonable um, to help." Um, these projects go ahead. You, you've moved beyond that now because that, that industry is pretty well understood. There's about 121 of these wind and solar farms around the place, so the bankers haven't got their minds around them now, then they never will. Um, you've moved on to different sort of projects. Um, interestingly enough, in the last year, it was um, transmission lines. Um, in fact, I think it actually over, overlap, over, overlaps on this year as well. But explain that one to me because transmission lines are not exactly new technology either what, what's what's the what's the gap that you're filling there yeah no look thank you for asking about that because <clears throat> um as you say we were there at the forefront of the the wind and solar market <clears throat> here in australia which of course has grown rapidly and has matured um there are still market gaps in in that market because um uh for those projects to get up very often they need contract it need, need to have a contract for the, the production of their power and there are still lots of great projects that we support certainly at the early stage so they get up and then maybe at a later stage they do find those contracts and other banks that can come in and and take us out so we still see a strategic role for us to support the uptake of renewables but you know one of the big issues as i'm sure many of your listeners know with the very rapid penetration of renewables across the grid is that the grid's not really built for the way that that renewables you know as that as renewables have rolled out across the country because you know we're building out wind and solar in in the right you know in parts of the country where that particular resource is at its you know best in theory and and where you've got some proximity to the power lines um, and also some proximity to who wants to use that power or the load as it's referred to. Um, but there's a lot that needs to be done really to to transition to this sort of distributed production of energy as opposed to the very central coffee power station up at Newcastle with the big power line down to Sydney. So, so the grid's going through this extraordinary change and it will do so over the next 20 years and the grid operators uh, you know, put out its blueprint for it, which is uh, AEMO's integrated system plan. And so the government has directed us to focus on ensuring that we have a secure and reliable grid. And that's led us to look very closely at what we can do to help support this grid transition. And the way that the old style rules work which allow these transmission companies, when they build out poles and wires, they kind of go into what's called a regulated asset base and then consumers ultimately pay for the cost of it. The rules around that don't necessarily accommodate uh, what we think or certainly what even what AEMO, the grid operator, thinks needs to be done or they don't get the right, you know, the right, the, the business models don't quite connect with the regulatory environment. So, so we've been trying to provide 
I guess, catalytic slices of capital to some of these big poles and wire projects to unlock renewables. And one of the good or best examples is Project Energy Connect. So Transgrid is building out this very large transmission line from uh, New South Wales down to South Australia to, to ensure that, you know, South Australia, which is predominantly renewables, can, can have much greater interconnection with New South Wales, which has you know, a larger production of dispatchable energy, particularly from, from coal. But of course, it's going to, you know, their coal-fired power stations will, will retire and it will need uh, you know, a two-way flow with, with states like South Australia. So this is a very, you know, multi-billion dollar project. It couldn't get the business case to work for Transgrid, which of course is a private company now, the New South Wales government sold Transgrid or sold its transmission assets some years ago to, to private sector owners. And we uh, we provided a long dated $300 million slice of capital um, that sits somewhere between the senior debt and equity that made the numbers work and have really has unlocked um, this very substantial bit of infrastructure, which in turn will allow something like two gigawatts of wind uh, in most cases, probably some solar as well in that corridor uh, between the two states. So so a long way of saying that we can use our, and we have you know quite a lot of capital, we've got 10 billion, so very significant, 6 billion committed today, but we can, we can use our capital in strategic ways to help these transmission projects that are hovering but not quite there to get the green light get built out and then in turn unlock renewables so that's that's what we're doing the other thing is um that you've got on your on, on your focus is um green hydrogen um I, I think that you've got roughly about 300 million dollars sort of sort of vaguely allocated towards green hydrogen um you haven't spent much yet because there's not much happening apart from lots of small ideas and small preparations and creation of hubs and platforms and things like that. But um, when do you think we might actually be getting into sort of substantial projects of scale that will actually sort of drive, I guess, this, because uh, in, in some way in green hydrogen and with electrolyzers and things like that, we find ourselves where we were with the solar industry, say, 10, you know, a decade ago. Um, yeah, it's true. Sort of, you know, great prospects, but, you know, a big cost, a, a big cost uh, run down to, to deliver. That's, that's very true. And different elements of the green hydrogen market had different time frames, and we put out a study earlier in the year on this. And, it, and I guess it said that um, the, you know the creation of green hydrogen using renewables um, is has probably got near term uptake in heavy trucking, heavy haulage, particularly in the resources sector. So we you know we're likely to see some projects of scale in the next you know, year or two there, and we're working on a couple of those. In terms of the replacing gas out there in networks with green hydrogen and that being competitive and the infrastructure being able to accommodate the introduction of green hydrogen into a conventional gas pipeline, that's a longer-dated game. I mean, the first pilot projects are happening in ARENA, the government grant maker in this area, and ourselves are working on some sort of you know, early stage projects there. They're sort of 10 megawatt uh, scale deals where they're producing hydrogen and introducing a small amount into an existing gas network. So we'll see some of those happen over the next couple of years. I think what's a much longer 
again, is this idea of a very, very large-scale electrolyzers driven by huge solar, potentially combined with wind uh, generation, possibly up there in North Australia, uh, creating vast amounts of green hydrogen, converting it into a transportable form, sending it off to Japan and Korea, and that being used as their fuel to drive power stations and generate electricity. I mean, that that will eventually happen, but you've got to get it <clears throat> to be highly competitive with their alternative fuel sources. And that's, you know, that's that cost rundown that you talk about. And that's the 10 to 15 year game. <clears throat> we might all be pleasantly surprised on the, the upside. The one deal we had done so far has, has been on the technology side where we, you know, we made a small investment into a, a a new generation electrolyzer coming out of the University of Wollongong. So we're, we're, that's been our first investment. But yes, the big scale infrastructure style projects, I think we're, you know, lots of efforts going into it but here and internationally. I mean, the Germans have committed 9 billion euros into developing their green hydrogen sector. So <clears throat> it's a global effort. And I think we, it will happen sooner than we think. But yes, there's there's certainly a bit to run on the green hydrogen sector. Mm. And what about the overall just sort of mandate? There's been a lot of discussion about, you know, whether the Clean Energy Finance Corporation like Arena might be sort of um, sort of pushed into sort of uh, uh, investments on technologies which are not strictly renewable and related to wind and solar and might have a fossil fuel component, be it carbon capture and storage or something like that. Um, where where are we up to with that with the Clean Energy Finance Corporation? And, and just sort of one question, which you might find surprising, but just be great to get an answer. Is I mean, how independent is the CEFC? Yeah, um, it's look when the the CEFC when it was established, the Act provided for uh, a very considerable degree of independence in the sense that in the Act it says that the minister can't direct you to do a particular deal or not do a particular deal. And uh, and it's governed by an independent board. But, you know, the board is, of course, appointed by the ministers of the day. Um, so, you know, the CFC has its act that it operates under. And then there is an investment mandate, which is um, a direction that's provided by ministers from time to time. And the, um, the investment mandate, we also have to comply with the investment mandate will tell you to do things like uh, try and achieve a certain return. Uh, the current one says $300 million into hydrogen, $100 million into recycling, support the security and reliability of the grid. Um, so there, there are, you know, so there's, I guess there's, you know, we're obviously a, a limb of government in the sense that we're taxpayer funded. We're part of the, you know, we're a statutory corporation. So we are trying to deliver the government's energy policies there's you know no question about that um and as our arena in terms of changes to the cefc um well the yeah there was going to be the grid the grid reliability fund was a piece of amending legislation that was proposed about a year ago and it was going to give us a further billion dollars to exclusively invest in the grid and there were going to be some changes around what was kind of in scope around low emission technologies that was debated at some length uh, in Parliament and is currently, I think, still on a list of, legis uh, of things that the government would like to do, but other priorities have, have really overtaken it. So we're unamended as of, you know, day one in you know, 2012 when that Act was first passed. 
and it says can't do carbon capture and storage, can't do nuclear. ARENA are having, yes, some changes are being processed there by way of regulation through Parliament, and I believe it allow them to do carbon capture and storage. So that would potentially give them the option to do blue hydrogen where you know, someone might create hydrogen from uh, splitting methane but capturing the CO2 and bearing it. So that would be a different technology, not a technology we could do. Um, so, yeah, we, you know, we, we kind of do what we... Um, we're directed to do subject to you know the, what the Act tells us to do and the investment mandate and government policies like the technology roadmap and you know the, the government has priorities there around green hydrogen, soil carbon, bear, you know working on technologies to, to sequester carbon into soil, green steel, green aluminium. That's that's probably a bit of a longer dated uh, objective as well because you've got to you know you've got to kind of be competitive with the, the current um, steel and aluminium production, which of course is using significant amounts of fossil fuels. And then long dated storage is, is another um, mm. priority technology. And of course, we've been doing lots of that with you know, investors in, in big batteries. We've got some pump storage projects that, we've, that we're trying to work with. They're challenging um, and are long dated. But so, yeah, you know, I guess it's, a, it's really a combination of, of what, our act and mandate and government direct us to do and what we see out there in the marketplace as well. Giles, you know, you, you, you can have these aspirations, but if there aren't places to sensibly deploy your capital, you don't end up doing any deals. <laughs> well, look, well, that's right. Yeah. Well, look, I'd love to sort of talk about some of the individual um, areas as well. I mean, we'll probably have to sort of, um, um, We'll have time to talk about energy efficiency and some of the other sort of um, housing um, incentives you're doing and deploying quite a lot of capital. Um, just a couple of very quick questions just to sort of finish up. One, um, the Victoria Big Batteries. Too early to say what happened there with the fire. I mean, look, it's, I mean, every technology has some sort of incidents happened to it, and I'm not too sure how dramatic this is, but um, any quick response to that one? Still waiting on the final report. Not troubled by it as you say it's look it was two of the 212 megapacks quarter light so as soon as the um, you know as soon as we see that report i'm sure now and the sponsor and tesla will um will go public on that but uh, yeah i'm you know not not troubled by it at all okay and just um you've you've had to, you got 10 billion dollars i think you must have spent um i mean about six and a half billion dollars if i'm right maybe it's a bit more than that has actually gone out the door how have the returns been overall um has this been a um, has this been a waste of money or has it actually been a good money earner for you know, the government it's been a bit, yeah look it's been an exceptional success the cfc and i don't say that you know just in, in terms of my reign, I think over the nearly, you know, nine, ten years next year, um, <clears throat> in the sense that it has for many years deployed a very significant amount of capital, as you say, we've, we've got commitments to over six billion, and we return a profit to the taxpayer even after, you, you know, if you take away the cost of government funding, which you don't see on our balance sheet because we are effectively equity funded but if you if you look at our net profit deduct the interest cost associated with all the capital that we do use so the government go out and issue bonds back there in treasury to ultimately fund us we still show a very significant very significant profit in the tens of millions of dollars so uh, that we've not touched wood have had any 
significant losses. I mean, they may well come. You've got to take a few risks. That's what we're about, taking risks that others won't. So I'm not saying that we won't be writing off projects or part of, of investments from time to time. But overall, it's been, I think it's been a terrific success, both financially and in terms of really pushing the, the transition to the to a clean energy um, economies in that sense. So, yeah, really proud of what it's done over mm. the last five or so years. And I just thought of just one of my other financial final question. It's not a financial one, it's just more of an environmental one. You're part of this sort of like trying to accelerate and grease the wheels of transition. Um, we need to reduce emissions. We've had the new IPCC report talking us about the urgency of doing that at a very quickly. Do you still hold out hope that we can actually um, get on top of this? Gee, it's a tough one, isn't it? The IPCC made for some very, very tough reading. Um, and look, it's a global, it's a big global issue. Um, we can only be hopeful. Uh, and as the IPCC report said, we've got to do more sooner if we've got any hope of staying under two degrees uh, over coming decades, because if we end up in the three, four degree warming scenarios that you can see in that report, it's there's just disastrous implications. So um, we fight, you know, we, we we do what we can, Giles. We do what we can. We do what we can. Look, Ian. On that note, um, thank you very much. Um, look, I do urge you to sort of, um, you know, dare to dare to go beyond the northern beaches as soon as the COVID regulations allow. <laughs> And get up there yeah. and go and see your family down in Melbourne and see the minister in Canberra and um, come up to Byron Bay and um, hop in that EV and um, give it a good uh, long-range test. Absolutely. Look forward to it. And thank you very much for having me on, on your podcast. Thanks very much, Ian. And uh, that was uh, Ian Learmont, the uh, Chief Executive of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. Uh, we would like to thank our sponsor, um, Solaray, for their support for this podcast. And uh, we'll be back very soon with another fascinating interview. Bye for now. The Driven Podcast was brought to you by Solaray Energy. Solaray Energy has been designing and installing solar and storage solutions for electric vehicle owners since EVs first arrived in Australia. There's a smarter way to run your EV from Solaray. Visit solaray.com.au forward slash the driven.